When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. There's guns across the river about to pound you. There's a lawman on your trail like to surround you. Bounty hunters are dancing all around you. Billy, they don't like you to be so free. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about Billy from the 1973 soundtrack to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is fellow Bobcat, David Lizerbrom. Hi, David. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. So <laughs> now, of course, the song that we're going to be talking about, Billy, uh, is kind of you know, aka that other song on the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid soundtrack, right? Uh, but but boy, you know, there's a lot to be said about this song. Of course, there's multiple versions of it, each with their own slight variations. But uh, you know, there's some great stuff here, and we have not talked about on this show the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid soundtrack since episode two. <laughs> of Bob Dylan, where we covered "Knocking on Heaven's Door," so it has been a long time uh, until we you know get go back into this album. And there's a lot to say about this album in the movie, of course. But before we get to all that, you know, David, you know what's coming. I got to ask you, how'd you become a fan of Bob? Well, um, let's see. I was thinking about that. Uh, I, I mean, I remember when I was in, I think, junior high. Uh, my friend Aaron gave me like a cassette dub of, um, you know, this is back when you would trade cassettes uh, in maybe the, around 1990-ish, of, um, you know, Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits. I think it was like he gave me, cause he's like, you got to check this out. It was like Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits and then like David Bowie's Changes thing. Mm. And, you know, that basically broke my brain for the rest of <laughs> the rest of time. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and so I just kind of like, you know, hopped on the train from there. So, um, you know, started with, uh, you know, again, the, the kind of canonical Greatest Hits, but um just kind of kept digging into stuff as i went along and um never really uh hit a roadblock <laughs> i mean it was always something always something interesting some things took a while to kind of percolate but um you know i was never one of those people who was like well i don't like this this era or that era it was you know it was all good to me now do your you may not know the answer to this question but was your friend just trying to uh proselytize the the word of bob or did they think that maybe there was something about they knew about you that, that, oh, he might like this. I'm not really sure. I think it was one of those things where, you know, in the when I was growing up, late 80s, early 90s, it was kind of a thing to, like, dig into your parents' record collection, you know, and and be like, oh, yeah, what, you know, what were they listening to in the 60s and 70s? And um, so people would kind of, like, tape things. And maybe this was a weird thing in my high school, my junior high or something, but like, it was kind of a thing where it was like, oh, check this out. It's Jimi Hendrix, you know? <laughs> um, so it was just kind of going around as far as I can recall. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I never did that because my parents uh, had uh, soundtracks to The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady. So I was just like, yeah, all right, never mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, okay. So yeah, you went out and, 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 you know, you did a deep dive yeah. Uh, where around what time was this? Or like, what's the like? You know, what's the time I mean, frame we're talking about? When I was first exposed was probably maybe 1990. I was born in 76, so you know, I was in junior high. Um, and then you know, then it was like just kind of keeping up with stuff. And I was into, for whatever reason, kind of like folk music and blues and things like that. I was playing guitar and just kind of learning about you know the kind of roots of musicians that I liked. So you know, when the 
folk albums came out and when you know like i i thought that stuff was all good you know world gone wrong good as i've been to you you know i just kind of was going along you know mtv unplugged etc and just kept you know like i said just kept rolling around the track that's that's uh first of all that's interesting that you kind of hit on him right at the kind of where he hit sort of a fallow point a little bit where he was sort of quiet for a while um i mean he did put out those folk records and i i can remember being a fan at the time and thinking, is this it? Is he done? You know what I mean? Like, is it just going to be, <laughs> yeah. and if it was just going to be more of the folk covers, I would have been fine with that. Cause I think those are great records, but of course you said you were playing guitar and you were getting into folk music to so that. That was actually lines up really perfectly. Yeah. It was kind of good timing. Actually, now that I think about it, I, I was, uh, into the, the traveling Wilburys when that yeah, first that, came out, yeah. I was Every, like, as everyone you know, was, yeah, I was like 12, whatever. And so, um, yeah. So, you know, another friend had those, you know, cassettes. Um, so I, I think I was kind of like, oh yeah, that's, you know, I knew Bob from that as well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I was always kind of like a, you know, like a music history nerd. So it was never a time that I remember not knowing who Bob Dylan was or something like that. You know, it wasn't like, oh, you have you heard of this guy? Um, you know, it was just in those days, there was no, you know, Spotify, no YouTube. Uh, so, you know, you had to encounter some physical media other than maybe, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of Bob being played on the radio. So it was sort of like whatever a friend had or you can get a, your, your hands on was what you're exposed to. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, right. Everyone had heard of him. He's like Graham Lincoln at this point. You know, he's just right. part of the culture. And you're like, well, I don't know when I when did I first heard of Lincoln? I have no idea. Just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He did, you know? Yeah. So the Beatles, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like the Beatles. It's that it's just to that to that level. Okay, well that's interesting. So how, you know, you said you play guitar. Do you write your own songs or do you just play? Not really. I played in a bunch of bands and, you know, things like that uh, in my um, misspent youth. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, you know, cover the occasional Dylan song and stuff like that. So it was always kind of around. I, well, that was my next question. What have you tried to cover? Yeah, the only one I can really think of was, like, the last band that I was in that I played a lot in was kind of like a uh, country rock uh, cover band. Um, this is a few years ago, and you know we would cover, uh, you know everything from Wilco to Hank Williams, you know backwards and forwards. So, um, yeah, we you ain't going no nowhere was a big one for us. Mm. Uh, so we did that. Um, that's probably the Dylan song that I can specifically remember covering. You know, at least the most uh, the most frequently. <laughs> were you the one that drove that, or was the other guys in the band? They were they were in on it too. Uh, I played the harmonica. So if that, you know, I mean, I was playing bass, guitar, harmonica, <laughs> I was kind of doing a little bit of everything. So, um, I don't know that I was driving it, but, uh, you know, trying to, trying to hit the harmonies and, and, uh, you know, have it, have fun with it. Cause it's a fun tune. It's absolutely. I love that song. That's a great song. So, all right, well, that's cool. So have you ever seen him live? Yeah, I was thinking about that too. So pr- my first time seeing him live was kind of a, uh, probably a little different experience. So at the time, my parents were involved in um, democratic politics, like the democratic party, not like, you know, democratic as opposed to fascist or something. And, um, and um, so we went to the 1993 Bill Clinton inauguration. Um, Ah, okay. um, So I I was 15, I would have been 15. And I grew up in California. So, you know, it was like, we traveled to Washington DC. It was January. It was cold. And, um, I remember walking uh, in the big parade um, and seeing kind of like off in the distance, Bob Dylan uh, singing Blowing in the Wind. <laughs> and um, I, I bet that that must be on YouTube. I haven't gone back and looked at it. But I just kind of remember seeing him like from a million miles away. There's probably screens and stuff. 
and just kind of thinking to myself, like, okay, this is probably like an important moment that I'm supposed to remember, you know? It wasn't like a, you know, a, a transcendent musical experience necessarily. Um, it, you know, probably wasn't necessarily his best gig, you know, like 10 in the morning or whatever on a cold Washington day. Um, but I do, like, I have a, you know, I do have a memory of that. Is, is you know, and probably a gig that uh, doesn't get talked about a whole lot. On no, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, he sings um, Chimes of Freedom. Uh, and I, I remembered watching, uh, was it Chimes, we, of, okay, it was Chimes yeah. of Freedom? Yeah. I, I mean, okay, I was thinking yeah. maybe he sang, I maybe sang Blowing in the Wind as well, but I remember him doing Chimes of Freedom because I remember watching the inauguration. We had it on in the background yeah. and I wasn't, you know, they didn't like tell you that he was going to be on. Yeah. Of okay. course I knew. And, you know, I'm just, we're kind of like, you know, I'm doing other things. And then all of a sudden they're like, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Dylan. I'm like, wait, what? You know, and I was like, oh yeah. my God, you know? So, yeah, well, because uh, <laughs> he, he performed at the like parade thing. And then there was also a concert, like a big right. rock concert, um, which we did go to. It was like some stadium or something or some, you know, sports arena, like where the Wizards played or something. Um, and I remember going to that and we were like way up high. You know, we were not like, you know, sitting next to the president or something. You know, we were, <laughs> but I remember uh, watching it. I, and I think Bob probably played, but I don't really remember that. But I do remember a big deal was like Fleetwood Mac got back together, like the original right, you know, right. five core, you know, <laughs> members, you know, and they did don't stop thinking about tomorrow. I remember that being pretty cool. Chuck Berry played. So yeah, I kind of like got it like a kind of a, you know, fifties through seventies classic rock uh, injection. Um, uh, thanks to uh, our good friend, uh, Bill Clinton. That's amazing. I remember that my, my uh, reading the anecdote about that, the, when he sang chimes of freedom, which of course is an incredibly dense song. Uh, and then he was kind of at the height of his kind of uh, mumbly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and apparently the woman who was there who was doing the um, uh, translations, the the, uh, yeah. the sign, sign language, language. She, yeah. she could not make out the words. <laughs> so she, just, she just signed music and lyrics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. <clears throat> I feel like being Bob's ASL uh, translator is probably a, uh, you know, <laughs> a tough gig sometimes. Probably. Wow. That's a, ama- I mean, what a moment though to see him. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. really unique. It was, and it was, yeah. I, I, I just, just because I knew we were going to be talking about this, I just occurred to me and I hadn't thought about it, you know, too much in like 30 years, but uh, yeah, that is my, that is my Bob Dylan origin story in terms that's, of live. That's real. So has that been the only time you've never seen him? In no, concert? no, I've seen him. I saw then the, um, the Paul Simon tour, uh, which was fun. Um, and I saw him, I've seen him a few times. I've seen him a few times, uh, like here in Southern California at like really bad sports arena type <laughs> venues, Remac arena, UCSD, and then San Diego sports arena. Um, and, and like always been kind of far away and the sound is terrible. So like, while I enjoyed it, it was again, the audio situation was not, uh, working in my favor, but we actually went, my wife took me for my 40th birthday to desert trip, the old cella thing. Um, that they did with Paul McCartney and the Stones and Neil Young and the Who, uh, Roger Waters. And of course, Bob opened it up. This was the first weekend. Bob opened it up, open for the Stones. Um, and this was the, uh, you know, th- this was the, um, the Sinatra years. And, you know, every other person performing at that, con- at that, you know, giant festival thing, you know, they had big screens and it was like a visual thing. Bob, of course, there was like no way to see him on this. The screens were just showing like some loop of like, you know, d- battered, eight millimeter footage from you know some city in 1940 or something and you know he's like going through his uh you know his, his, the, the classics and stuff like that and 
Yeah, I, I feel like probably there was like 100,000 people there and I was the only person that enjoyed it. <laughs> but I was like, this is great. <laughs> so uh, he did not come out, of course, and perform with the Stones, which I was hoping he, you know, I, I was mm-hmm. hoping against hope that would happen. But uh, yeah, so that was my last time uh, seeing him so far. Okay, interesting. So <laughs> I've seen You've... some kind of weird uh, Bob experiences, I guess. Yeah, that's a, that's a bunch of very kind of random exp- random uh, moments to meet up with them. That's really funny. <laughs> I just imagine the crowd for that show and like, I mean, uh, you know, if 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 the if the lineup is Paul McCartney and the Stones and Pink Floyd, you, you know what that crowd is, and they yeah. probably more than even a regular Dylan show, they're looking for hits. They're looking yeah. for '60s hits, and here he is coming out singing, well, yeah, songs from Triplicate. It's like, okay. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and it's you know he opened up the whole weekend, so it's like this big hype thing. Everybody paid like ten billion dollars to get there, you know, and whatever, and <laughs> you know, and and you know the Stones are about to come on, and it was just like the worst, you know, possible circumstance for um to really appreciate and enjoy his, you know, his uh. <laughs> You know, interpretation of Sinatra classics, but um, I thought it was. I was like, "This is awesome!" So I was having okay. a good time. So all right, yeah. well, good. There you go. Well, I mean, he should be coming around to your neck of the woods, I guess, again soon. Yeah, for the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour. So maybe he, you'll get a chance to see him then. He is playing uh, like two miles from my house, and while he is playing, I will be on an airplane, so I will be missing oh, that. No. But uh, that's all right. That's all right. I'll, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure he'll outlive us all, and uh, I will get to catch him uh, again when he comes around again soon probably uh completely true so okay uh all right let, let's talk about billy uh, again the the other song from the pat garrett and the billy the kid soundtrack it's the only other song that has lyrics other than it. turkey chase when you say the other song well yes, there's <laughs> turkey. There, now now there were other songs recorded at the sessions that feature lyrics but they did not make it into neither the movie or the soundtrack. So this is really, it's really knocking on heaven's door and Billy. Now, of course, there are multiple versions of Billy. There's Billy 1, Billy 4, Billy 7, and then the main title theme, which is also called Billy, and that's an instrumental. But Billy 4 uh, is the one that I think of the ones I listen to the, the most, since I listen to the Pat Garrett and Billy, the kid soundtrack, all that much. This is the one uh, I listen to probably the most because it's I, I enjoy it the most. Now, wh- why, would, why this song? Why do you want to talk about this one? Well, I'm just, uh, I, I know that the, you know, whole Pat Garrett experience is a little bit of a footnote, you know, for people that are looking at the life of Bob Dylan, but I have always found it to be kind of interesting and maybe, I don't know, maybe underrated in a way, um, you know, in terms of people who spend all day thinking about Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah. So, I mean, three things that like, I'm like really super into are Westerns and the uh, new Hollywood of the 70s and Bob Dylan. So this is like the only place where all three of those. Yeah, <laughs> the Venn diagram of your interest. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I I'm sort of could not help but be interested in it. I'm also like a big fan of Sam Puckinpah, the director. Um, and um, so, you know, a few years ago, I was like going through, you know, pretty much his whole filmography and was just like, all right, now I get to, you know, get into the whole Bob Dylan experience. So seeing his, his you know, acting debut and um you know how he related to it and then just reading about his you know how he got involved and his experience with the movie um i just always found that to be you know i don't know that it reveals a whole lot about him um because what does but i did find it all to be uh pretty interesting and i mean i love the movie it's very watchable and um yeah i do go back to the soundtrack a lot i mean you know i i it's certainly different than listening to rough and ruddy ways or listening to highway 61 or something like that but um I mean, I just love the vibes 
And uh, it is actually something that I put on a lot just to kind of like have music going in the background or something that you can kind of, you know, chill out to. And, and, uh, and then knocking on heaven's door comes along. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, you kind of perk up. Uh, or my five-year-old knows that one, you know. Yeah, but, um, everybody does, yeah. Yeah, but, but, um, but, but I don't know. I just, I, I, I think uh, it, it's kind of like a weird sliding doors thing. Like what could have been if things hadn't gone so wrong with that movie, maybe he would have done more film work or been more involved in this kind of phenomenon of like movies in the seventies, specifically movies that are like reconsidering American history and the West things that he's so interested in and, Mm. you know, really played a part in. Um, But of course the whole thing was sort of a catastrophe and um, that probably put him off of the whole, you know, filmmaking experience. Or maybe he was just like, well, this doesn't work. I'm going to be my own filmmaker. And he went off and (laughs) made Ronaldo and Clara. And that's how that worked out. It's kind of interesting. I, I watched the movie again just a couple of days ago in preparation for this. And I had forgotten that like that opening sequence where like they shoot the chickens. Like, yeah, that's they rough. Blow, blow the heads off the chickens. And like, unless those are like fake chickens, which I highly doubt they are fake chickens. I don't think the movie would have made that effort to like, you know, get the prop department to make fake chickens. That means they got a bunch of chickens and blew their heads off. And I have a thing about, you know, to me, you should, you know, to me, killing an animal in a movie for your yeah. movie. I'm just like, you know, <laughs> no, no, like no. go fuck yourself. You know what no, I mean? No, no. Like, I agree. No, actually, you know, it's funny. Years ago, I remember listening to an interview with Quentin Tarantino. I think it was like Terry Gross, like Fresh Air. And, you know, she, she was asking him, like, you know, all your movies are so violent. Like, you know, you watch a lot of horror movies and violent movies. Is there anything in movies that like even you are squeamish about that you can't watch? And he singled out that scene. I mean, he's oh, a big did Sam, he really? Sam Peck, wow. Okay. He's a big Sam Peckinpah fan. The Wild Bunch obviously is a huge influence on him, and it, you know he's basically almost been remaking parts of the Wild Bunch for you know his whole career. <laughs> and he specifically said, "Yeah, like that scene in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid when they're like really shooting chickens. Like, you know, that's not right. It it bothers me. It turns my stomach. And so, like, you know, even the the master of gore himself, Quentin Tarantino, uh, is with us on that." Yeah, but yeah. Aside from that, you know, 30 seconds in the movie, which maybe I wish I would, you know, I, if I could somehow cut that out. Yeah. Um, it comes right at the top of the movie. So, you, you know, you got to you got to be prepared. But after that, you know, the rest of it, I think, uh, holds up pretty well. Yeah, I enjoyed it again. I, I, I like a lot of Sam Peckinpah films. I've seen a bunch of them. I'm not I'm not like an expert. I mean, I've seen uh, The Getaway and I've seen Ride the High Country and uh, what? Jeez, uh, I'm trying to. I'm blanking on some of his other films at the moment, but I've seen a lot of Wild Bunch. Wild, certainly seen Wild Bunch. Uh, I think I saw Major Donner one time. I think yeah, I mean, Ma- Major ago. Dundee, Junior Major, Major Dundee. Yeah, that's what I was be, yeah. yeah, right, right. Bring me the head um, of Alfredo Garcia. That's oh, I've seen that one. He kills a kills a scorpion in that one. They blow up a scorpion. Right. Uh, in that I one. feel less bad about the scorpion. I a little less bad, but but just as a side a sidetrack to this. Uh, there's a documentary about the movie Magnolia, the Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson movie. And it's a great documentary. You can find it online. It's on YouTube. It's marvelous. Cause it's not like one of those puff pieces. Like it's an actual documentary, but the warts and all making of it. And Jason Robards is in that movie who of course was in bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Sure. And he's telling stories to Philip Seymour Hoffman about working with Sam Peckinpah because they're killing time in between setups. And he's telling Seymour Hoffman about blowing up the scorpion. And like they had to blow up like six scorpions to get it right <laughs> and then round up it. And it's so funny to hear a guy from Robards' generation who came of age 
when they made movies in a way that they don't do nowadays. Right. And Phil, Phil Seymour Hoffman just goes, what movie was this? He just, <laughs> so He's so like, what? You know, he, he, can't, he can't wrap his head around that there was a point where they were blowing scorpions up for a movie. And it's very charming because he just can't. You see him just being like, what? And he's like, oh, yeah, it was uh, going to bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Like, okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, even in Pac Era, there are stunts with horses where, like, you know, the, there's a big shootout and the guy's falling off the horse and the horse yeah. kind of falls over. I'm like, I'm not sure they would do that now with a yeah. real horse. Like, you know, I know it's stunts and, like, I'm sure that, you know, they train the horse how to do it. And, you know, they didn't want horses to be getting injured left around in the set. That's, like, you know, not only a bad thing, but also an expense. But it still seems like there's just a lot of stuff that, you know, you just couldn't get away with these days. Yeah, I read a whole book about the making of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and it was it's interesting. Like, you know, Bob himself, not known for being necessarily the easiest person to get along with in terms of you know creative decisions. You know, he's going to do things the way he wants to do them. He's going to sometimes be very contrary, almost knee jerk contrary at times. Yeah, and then you hear, okay, well, all right, Bob, this is now you're working with a guy who's even more contrary than you, <laughs> and. Right. You know, is it fun? Kind of not, Bob. So, well, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. No, it sounds like Peckinpah was way more out of control than Dylan has ever been. I mean, there's the oh, famous, yeah. famous story about that they screened some cut of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid that Peckinpah didn't like, and he stood up on a chair and urinated on the screen. Right. In front of Dylan, and Dylan was like, what the hell is happening here? So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, his. this was like really when his alcoholism got to the point where it was just totally out of control. And I mean, there was a lot of illness on the set as well. Like, you know, just, it, you know, they're shooting out of Mexico and, and it, you know, it was not a uh, hygienic situation, I think, um, you know, just in terms of people's habits and everything else going on. So, um, but yeah, I mean, he, he was, um, this was just like, if you're, if you're a sucker for stories of just, a you know, the raging, uh, you know, Sam Peckinpah, who really saw himself like as a sort of cowboy hero himself. I mean, this is really the Dylan found himself in the peak of that. Yeah. And you could totally see how the themes of that movie fit in with so much of what Dylan's always been concerned about the, you know, authority, the times in, changing times, right? Uh, the idea that someone is out of time, you know, that Billy, the kid right. is kind of this figure of the old West and the new West is coming in and he doesn't fit anymore. And society is kind of like, we can't let you be out there being old West. We got to right. bring you in. And if you don't, and if you won't come in, you're going to die. And then yeah. those are all stuff that Bob's, uh, you know, been concerned about in, in his music up to this day. So you could see yeah. why it would be attractive to him. Now, what did you think of his performance in the movie and him, him in the movie? Well, I, uh, you know, watching it really carefully again this time, I noticed Peckinpah does seem to cut around him a lot, meaning, you know, everybody else in this movie is, um, or, well, not everybody else. Okay, so Chris Christopherson had had some acting experience. There's a few other, like, members of his band who are just kind of around, but most of the people, the faces you see in this movie, are people that have been in a billion movies, you know? Like, uh, you know, Slim Pickens and people like that, that you know, that have been in, you know, a thousand and one cowboy movies. The list of character actors in this movie is amazing. Yeah, RG like Armstrong and oh yeah. yeah, and and it's um you know so they all are such professionals. They know how to hit their marks. They can be in a scene together. They can deliver the goods, and it kind of is. I I almost feel like in terms of like a scene where you actually see two people talking to each other, there's a couple of scenes um with Bob where you know he's in the same frame as Christopherson. They're talking a little bit, but most of the time when Bob talks as Alias. 
it's like other people are talking and they'll cut to just a single shot of him and he delivers his line. Mm-hmm. And it's not that he does a bad reading, but like it just kind of made me think like maybe he just wasn't, you know, able or willing to to nail things, you know, as well as these professional actors. And so they kind of had to just like get a shot of him separately saying his line. I, I, again, that's a little bit of speculation, but I just really noticed that that there was a little bit of a different editing around him than around some of the people that are maybe a little bit more accustomed to being on screen. Yeah. I mean, just on a pure superficial level, like if you're somebody who loves movies that we know Bob does, um, you get invited to be, now he might sound like Bob shared scenes with hardly any of these people, but just to be around, like I said, like an RG Armstrong or a Slim Pickens or a Chill Wills or Katie, Katie Urado for Pete's sake. She was in high noon. Yeah. You know, I mean, just if someone just said that and said, hey, do you want to come to a set or, or actually come out next down to Durango, which he, of course, Bob got another whole song about about it on the Desire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, come down to, to Mexico and you're going to hang out with all these people who have been in all these movies you've seen. Right. You'd, you'd be like, yeah, of course I'm going to do that. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, no question. Now, I love the story of which you probably know because you've looked into this, but the story of how he kind of. I guess, audition for Sam Peckinpah. Do you know this story? A um, little bit. I mean, I know that Peckinpah initially wanted the, what's his name? Um, Roger, Roger Miller. So, yeah. King yeah, of the yeah. road. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was um, Christofferson. who was like, well, no, 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 no. We're going <laughs> to. Yeah. Well, I guess, so I, I have this um, biography of Sam Peckinpah called bloody Sam by writer called Mitchell fine. I don't know how, you know, it's fairly lurid, so I don't know, but I, I, I like the stories enough that I'm assuming they're true. Um, I'm going to, before I relate the story, I should ask if cursing is a lot of this podcast. I already did. So go right. <laughs> okay. Out. All right. Uh, because I just, I, you know, looked at these pages and, and basically like, you know, when they, when they brought up, um, Bob Dylan, Sam said, Bob who, Oh yeah. He's like a guy my kids listen to, you know, he's from another generation. And so, um, you know, they uh, basically, th- they had a, uh, a a dinner with, and I'm going to read this now. Sounds like a great, um, great dinner. Goat's head soup and tacos, tequila and mezcal, marijuana and cocaine. That's, I mean, that's what I have for dinner. I don't know about you. Um, and then afterward, Peckinpah said to Dylan, okay, kid, let's hear what you got. So Dylan took his guitar and they went to another room. Peckinpah sat in a rocking chair. Dylan sat on a footstool. After a couple of tunes, Peckinpah came back to the dining room. Tears coursing down his cheeks, obviously moved, muttering, that son of a bitch, that cocksucker, in admiration. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, can you imagine you're like, you know, this, you know, hardened, cigar-chomping, you know, drug and alcohol-addicted, you know, cowboy director, uh, and here comes this young kid, from your perspective, I mean, Dylan was obviously, this is the 70s, he's already done, you know, enough to be on Mount Rushmore, but, um, you know, to, to... to have Dylan basically audition for you one-on-one or just play for you one-on-one in, you know, 1972. Um, I, I, it's just like, he got the best, you know, he got the, the front seat to the best, you know, best show ever. You ain't kidding. Boy, I would kill to know what songs he sang. Yeah. That's you all know? I got. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? What did he pull out from the catalog? You know, it could be like old cowboy songs that Peckinpah hadn't heard in 30 years. Who knows? I, you know what? I think that's probably the a better, I, I think that's probably more accurate that he did that than, you know, he's not pulling out visions of Johanna. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he's, doing, he's probably, yeah, singing old cowboy stuff that Sam Peckinpah would like or Johnny Cash songs or whatever. So yeah, that's, isn't that amazing though, that like Bob Dylan, like going to Bob Dylan and saying basically audition for me. 
Right. You know, I mean, it's like (laughs) after that dinner, like you got your goat's head soup and your tacos and your Coke and your mezcal. Now let's, uh, you know, now it's time to get back down to work. (laughs) Hey, Michelangelo, do this sketch for me and then we'll see about the murals. You know, I mean, like, what the hell? That's just amazing. Now, by the way, I mentioned that it was Chris Christopherson that recommended Dylan to Peckinpah. And when they were recording Nashville Skyline, uh, according to uh, Kenny Buttrey, because he tells, tells the story, Chris Christopherson was a janitor right. when they made that record. That was 1969, right? Yeah. This is 1973, just four years later. Right, yeah. Chris Christopherson is not a janitor anymore. He's a movie star and recording artist, and he's so big that he's recommending Bob Dylan for a job. Like, yeah. Wow, I, what a four years that was. I always felt like that timeline didn't add up. I mean, I knew that he, you know, Christopherson had been like a road scholar and then he was in the Marines or something. And then he like went to Nashville to be a songwriter and he was working as a janitor. I always wondered like, you know, was that like a week, a month, a year? Like how long did that really happen? <laughs> and yeah, the timeline isn't never quite added up for me. If maybe it was his last week as a janitor when they did Nashville Skyline, I don't know. But, um, you know, I, 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 it, it certainly makes, again, for, for a great story. And another kind of theme of this movie that... Um, you were talking about the kind of themes and how they tie in with Dylan. I mean, another theme of the movie is really just kind of like the power of stories because, um, you know, obviously this is not the real story of what happened with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, like the historical characters. Like right. this was just a completely fictionalized sequence of events where like they took, you know, the highlights of, you know, what really happened and just totally turned it into a, into a fantasy, you know, a cowboy type of fantasy. And that's also, I think, a big part of what Bob does is like, you know, nowadays movies come out and they're based on historical events. And then you got a lot of, you know, geniuses on Twitter going like, well, actually, that's not what really happened because the stars would have been in this direction at that night or something, you know. (laughs) And, um, you know, maybe there's, you know, some people saying that in 1973, but they would have just been muttering to themselves at a bar. (laughs) But, you know, now they have Twitter. Um, But yeah, it's just kind of like taking historical events for artistic inspiration to kind of make a point rather than make something that is going to hold up, you know, to the, you know, Wikipedia's of the world is, um, you, you know, again, I, I, obviously the influence goes back and forth and it's not like either Bob or Peckinpah are the first to do it, but I, you know, I can just, I feel like they probably were simpatico when, when they were kind of coming up with this concept. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that kind of ties into something that, that I, I was sort of thinking about when I listened to this song, in particular, I always think it's got to be, and Bob has done a lot of soundtrack work, as we know, over the years. Um, for someone so driven by his inspiration, you know, I mean, it's like when, it, when, when, the, when the muse strikes, he goes in and he records or he goes and he writes. And that's always sort of been his MO, you know, through his whole career. And this is kind of like reverse engineering that, you know, we're like, okay, we already have the subject. Now come up with something about that subject. That's got to be really hard to do. Now, part of it is just being a professional musician and, you know, fulfilling the task that you've been contracted to do. But that's, it seems so antithetical to everything the way, as far as we know, the way Dylan works is, is that like, okay, well now you sit and write a song about Billy the Kid. Okay. You know, like, uh, well, what do I want to say? I mean, there's already been a lot of songs about Billy the Kid. There's been a lot of movies about Billy the Kid. What do I, you know, what I got to come up with something that's unique that also has to fit the tone of the movie. You can't have this like screaming rock thing in the right. middle of this movie, but it also has to sound Dylan-esque too. You don't 
You don't want him to write something generic that anybody could read. You're hiring Bob Dylan for a reason. And they, they were certainly marketing it that way. Um, I found it very funny that Bob Dylan, I forgot, again, forgot this. He gets his name over the title. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty amazing. You know, I mean, it's, it's. For somebody with so few lines, and most of them are about yeah. beans. Yeah. James Coburn, Chris Christopherson, <laughs> Bob Dylan, Pat Garrett. Yeah. Building, wow. Like, that's, a, that's a good agent that Bob had. But like, but this song, I think, manages to marry those two kind of disparate concepts. Uh, I, I quoted the the initial verse to it, and it continues on. It's camping out all night on the veranda, walking in the streets down the, by the hacienda, up to Boot Hill, they'd like to send you. Billy, don't you turn your back on me. There's mills inside the minds of crazy phases, bullets, a hole, bullet holes, and rifles in their cases. There's always one more notch and four more aces. Billy, you're playing all alone. And again, that's a, they're all very Dylan-esque lines, and yet they are telling the story quite effectively. So I think he really did manage to kind of find that sweet spot of making it sound like a Dylan song, but also being a ballad about Billy the Kid. Yeah, I mean, I would feel, I think the lyrics don't necessarily like call attention to themselves as much as, you know, uh, some of the stuff he was doing, you know, a few years earlier, but obviously that was not his MO at the time. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is um, all pretty simple. I mean, I think this is a guy who had absorbed so much of, Western history and culture and, you know, probably seen so many Westerns on TV and movies and everything that like, you know, this stuff about Boot Hill, you know, which is just like a famous, a a generic kind of name for a cemetery out in the, you know, the West, um, you know, where soldiers who died with their boots on or cowboys who died with their boots on would be buried. You know, there's all this kind of like, uh, you know, just kind of language um, that, um, you know, I think he just kind of had all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, I guess probably for him, again, putting yourself in the mind of Bob Dylan is probably a dangerous, you know, <laughs> yeah. exercise, um, especially after that dinner. But um, <laughs> I mean, you got to figure maybe he wanted a challenge um, to do something he hadn't done. I mean, he kind of obviously that's, you know, something he's always doing. Um, but, you know, after everything he'd done up to that point, um, I get, you know, it, it, I guess it was just a matter of like, hey, what else could I try to do that I never did before? Um, and it is interesting on the soundtrack that he does some instrumentals because it's, mm. you know, there's not a lot of instrumentals in his catalog, as, you know, especially up to that point. Um, and um, to do it in a way that, you know, accompanies the movie, I think it's all pretty effective. I mean, it's, you know, it's not like he's um, trying to be, uh, you know, a, a Bernard Herman or something, you know, like some, <laughs> you know, orchestral uh, soundtrack, uh, you know, Alfred Newman, one of these, you know, famous um, movie score, you know, geniuses. That's just not his kind of thing. You know, the music he makes is much more simple in terms of like the harmony and things like that. But um, nonetheless, I think um, it's all pretty, you know, it does kind of work. It's effective. And it, again, it's the kind of thing where it's like, what if he had done more of that kind of stuff? What if he had just mm-hmm. almost focused a little bit more on the instrumental side of things um, just to kind of see where he could go with that? And, and, and um, yeah, it, it, it's another thing where, like, obviously the guy is so talented that he could have taken any of these billions of directions and um, they probably all would have been great. But it's just kind of nice to get that little, that little taste. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, again, the song basically does sort of what the movie does. Um, which is just to kind of like tell in a sort of impressionistic way um, the story of these characters um, from the perspective of Billy, um, you know, sort of being pursued. And, um, you know, Bob always likes the kind of outlaw. That's obviously a common trope and, you know, not just rock music, but also, you know, folk, country, blues, etc. Um, and, um, 
you know, he, he, he puts you in that place. And, um, yeah, it kind of reminds me of other songs from around the same time. Also, like, for some reason, this song reminds me always a little bit of Powderfinger, the Neil Young song. You know, look out, mama, there's a white boat coming up the river. Oh, okay. And, I didn't know, know the name of it, but I know that song. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is from a few years later. It's from like Rust Never Sleeps. But, you know, again, around that time where um, the kind of cowboy mythology um, was very easily accessed because, you know, Westerns were so popular early. You know, they're just not as popular now. So it's more of a novelty when you see a new kind of Western TV show or movie or something. But in those days, it was like you could just watch Westerns your entire life, you know, yeah. all day long. And, um, you know, I mean, Robert Hunter and the dead, you know, played around with that same type of mythology. So it's just kind of like something in the air at that time that for me, even though I grew up a little bit later, is still extremely effective. Like those images just get to me, you know, even though I maybe I'm getting it third or fourth hand. It's, it just works. Hmm. It could be that when he was down there, I mean, I think probably a big part of it was that he was on location with these people soaking up the local atmosphere. It would have been probably very different. Uh, not that he was recording it down there, but but it's not like they shot this movie on a back lot, you know, right. somewhere with fake, you know, flats of uh, of saloons and stuff like they would have done back in the right. 30s, you know, when Hopalong Cassidy was cranking out like six movies a month or whatever. Sure. Uh, that kind of thing. So, I mean, that probably had to be something of like, you know, bleeding into just the feeling of it. Now, again, it, it, the song is Dylan asking that it changes perspectives. Because I feel like that line about Billy, don't you turn your back on me seems like it's from Pat Garrett's point of view. Right. But it's yeah. not because then he's, you know, this, this, this omniscient narrator seems to be, you know, somebody else because he goes on, he says, you know, they say Pat Garrett's got your number. So, okay, now then we're not talking. He's not Pat Garrett. This is someone else. Right. Um, so sleep with one eye open when you wonder every little sound just might be thunder, thunder from the barrel of his gun. Now, the next verse is my favorite verse to me is I think this is just such a classic, you know, Dylan Turner phrase. The there's always some, another stranger sneaking glances, some trigger happy fool willing to take chances. Some old whore from say Pedro, some San Pedro make advances, advances on your spirit and your soul. I just, the idea of someone making advances on your spirit and your soul to me is such a beautiful turn a phrase that i just oh man but yeah he's like yeah you're nailing it bob you're nailing it yeah he starts out with some old whore and then by the end of that you know that couplet or whatever that line you oh you've gotten into uh you know he's taken it in the spirit and the soul like you know within the space of a few words you know he's gone from the earthiest um to uh you know the most profound and it's yeah. you know it, it's really um uh, yeah, I, I can't really, I can't really top that. I would just say, in terms of the perspective of the song, my assumption is that the perspective of the song is from the perspective of his character, Alias, hmm. because Alias in the movie, you know, he kind of is just a guy, you know, who's hanging around and he witnesses um, uh, Billy the Kid, you know, kind of in a, you know, escape from prison, getting this gunfight, um, you know, and um, and then he follows Billy, um, and. In a way, you know, he could have been the, um, you know, the, the stranger sneaking glances, you know, the, the, mm. the source of danger. But instead, he was just a worshiper of Billy. Um, you know, he, I, I, I always found that character interesting because, first of all, I kind of feel like maybe Bob had seen that himself. Like, people, you know, dropping everything to follow him around. Mm. And, um, you know, people who just had nothing else going on in their life. I mean, the guy's just called Alias. He, and he says that. Like, he doesn't, you know, even really claim his own identity or name. He just ties his identity to this 
famous person and follows him around. Something I'm sure, like I said, Bob would probably have some familiarity with and probably complicated feelings about. Um, hmm. But yeah, I, I, again, uh, looking at the lyrics of the song, um, it kind of adds up to me that that's the perspective of you know neither Pat nor Billy, but somebody who's very close to Billy, who's trying to warn him and um, to you know to kind of get the lowdown about what's going on. Yeah, I mean, not to be too self-aggrandizing, but it, it happens. I'm sure that Bob sees some of himself in Billy the Kid, at least in this perspective. I mean, the idea, again, of, of someone making advances on your spirit and your soul is like their, you know, financial gain for, you know, they're going to they're gonna chew you up and spit you out in whatever meaning you want to take from that for financial gain or for glory. And right. if you're Bob Dylan, you worry about people like that in your life who just are willing, or whether it's your record company. Because, of right. course, we're right around this point, Bob was about to split off sure. from Columbia Records. I mean, you got to you know, or worry people about who are, Or people who are making a podcast about you <laughs> 60 could years be, later. Could be that, could be that too. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, oh, boy, I'm going to need some salve for that burn there, David. Uh, so... <laughs> But uh, got your spirit and your soul, right? Yeah, there, our spirit and my soul. Absolutely. Yeah, but that's true. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the, 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 there's a lot, there's a lot to that. And um, going back to the movie a little bit, one of the, and I've mentioned this in other episodes about like where we've talked about Bob's movie work is I feel like Bob is, I don't, I can't say from what I've seen of him in movies that he is a good actor. Um, I really <laughs> can't. Fair to say. I but what but he has undeniable movie star chemistry in that the minute he's on screen you're looking at him because oh yeah this is who he is. He just he draws your eye. And I think it would have been interesting if Dylan had worked with a director who was interested and had the uh wherewithal to draw out an actual performance from. But well if we know of this movie Peck and Paul had a lot of problems going on personally, professionally. He just didn't have it in him to coax a performance out of an actor, especially on a movie like this where he is, we talked about, he's working with Chill Wills and Slim Wickens and Katie Arado and J- James Coburn, these people who have had lots of years yeah. on movie sets. They're, they're well-worn. They know what they're doing. They're hitting their lines, you know, and they're going home. Peck and Paul's barely hanging on. He doesn't have the ability or the time to turn Bob Dylan into an actor. And it's a shame because I think if Bob had maybe had that opportunity, he'd worked with some directors who maybe could have coaxed. Ironically enough, Scorsese probably would have been great at that. And yet the only time he's ever worked with Scorsese is from these documentaries. Um, But I think if he had paired himself up with some directors who were actually maybe saying, let's try and make you a movie actor, there might've been something there. But he just never really got that opportunity because, of course, he never really did another acting performance until he was directing himself, and that's a whole different... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a what if, um, but obviously the guy's performing um, the Bob Dylan character Mm -hmm. on... You know, uh, on stage, uh, in show and concert, uh, you know, for for all these years. So, you know, I guess he's, he, you know, th- to the extent that he has the performing bug, he's, you know, he's done three thousand something concerts. So yeah. maybe he figures that's enough. And once in a while, he'll dabble in something else. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like if you probably were able to talk to him, he would probably put his movie work just in terms of priorities in his life. You know, down below the uh, the ironwork and the painting and everything <laughs> yeah. else. Yeah, the sketchbooks and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the song continues. The businessman from Taos 
want you to go down. So they've hired Mr. Garrett. He'll force you to slow down. Billy, don't make you feel so low down to be hunted by the man who was your friend. So hang on to your woman if you got one. I love the way he sings that, by the way. He sings like, hang on, hang on to your woman if you got one. He just like he's, yeah. he just thought of that line. Remember, in El Paso, once you shot one, I'll be in Santa Fe about one. Billy, you've been running for so long. Gypsy Queens will play your grand finale way down in some Tularosa Alley, maybe in La Rio, Pecos Valley. Billy, you're so far away from home. Billy, you're so far away from home. This probably, in terms of sheer locations, probably holds the title. For them, just the number of places mentioned in any given pub. Dylan Song, he's got about a dozen different <laughs> yeah. places. I feel like, like, those, like I've a, been everywhere. I've been yeah, the yeah, it's a boat, Johnny yeah. Cash thing. Yeah, absolutely. or yeah, Chuck Berry, born you know, like whatever. Uh, one yeah. of those songs where you list a lot of locations. There's, yeah. there's there's a lot of locations in here. Now of the the variations of the song, because again, there's slight lyrical variations on on uh, on them. Would you have a particular favorite of Billy Billy One, Billy Four, and Billy Seven? All have lyrics to them and they're all slightly different do you really do you denote any difference or you just kind of look lump it all as like billy it's just that yeah i kind of lump it all as billy i mean i mostly like you said i also listen to the billy four uh the one that we've been talking about um the most just because it's the most complete um and uh you know it sort of tells a story um a little bit more uh the other ones seem a little bit more like fragments mm. and i don't know what i i assume he recorded them in the numerical order but who knows yeah. um and uh, yeah, so the, the one that we've been talking about is the one that I go back to most. Now, before we did this, I was positive that he never did this in concert. We know he's done knocking on heaven's door, knocking on heaven's door became its own thing. Sure. Uh, but uh, and the whole reason, by the way, the whole reason that song even got created was because Bob was working with a movie, a, um, a soundtrack composer, Jerry Fielding. Mm-hmm. who did not get along with Bob at all. Jerry Fielding was an old-timey guy and just thought, yeah. who the hell is this guy? And he told Bob, you know, Bob, you cannot do an entire soundtrack based on one song, which was this Billy song. Now, but again, Bob had already recorded other songs, um, one called Goodbye Holly, and then another one called Pecos Blues, both of which feature lyrics. Again, they did not make either the record or the soundtrack. I've never heard them. There were bootlegs out there. Uh, but I've never heard them. And so, you know, most of the soundtrack was going to be this Billy song and they were going to use different versions. And it was Fielding who said, you got to come up with something else, you know? And then Bob went away for a couple of days and comes back with knocking on heaven's door, uh, yeah. which is, you know, just unbelievable. One of the great anecdotes of Dylan's career that it's like, go write something else. All right. All right. All right. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Oh yeah. Here's this <laughs> knocking on heaven's door. Like, what are you kidding? Um, yeah. And I always wonder because, like, you know, musically, first of all, the Billy song, musically, in terms of the chords, is, you know, even for Bob, very simple. I mean, the three, one, three, one, four, five chords, um, super simple, um, it, you know, and, and um, you know, I just wonder, yeah, Fielding was like, well, this is nonsense. Like, these are just, you know, the most bass, the first three chords you learn when you're, you know, learning guitar. And, uh, you know, here I am, this, you know, composer, you know, having to babysit this, you know, this, this kid. <laughs> and, um, and then Bob comes back and knocking on heaven's door also is the most simple, uh, you know, from a, from a chord perspective song in Bob's catalog. Like it's also one, th- it's the same exact chords, just in a tiny bit of a different order. It's like, <laughs> uh, one, five, four instead of one, four, five. Um, and yet of course is like one of the greatest, you know, 
songs and hits of all time. <laughs> so I, I, I wonder if, uh, again, just kind of speculating if Bob was like, oh, you're, you know, you're not going to be for just, you know, for being a rudimentary musician. Well, I'm going to use the exact same, you know, three Lego blocks and, uh, <laughs> you know, and build something that uh, is going to last longer than anything, you know, not to knock Jerry Fielding, but uh, he's not Bob Dylan. Right. And I mean, outlive the movie. I mean, the movie is still right. available, but most people don't know the movie. They know the song because it's right. been covered a million times and it's just really one of the most famous songs. But, but anyway, what I was saying about that, uh, I was so sure that Bob had never performed Billy live. Well, wrong. He did. In fact, he performed it all of one time there on you go. March, March 22nd, 2009. And you can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's there. It is. I thought that was so amazing that he did this because, I mean, that means they rehearsed it <laughs> at some point, and yet he didn't really the, does did it, it. Well, does it though? I I, I get maybe because not. you know it's three chords. I yeah, that's true. Maybe not. Maybe you could just transpose it again. I don't know. I don't know how these things work. But right. I mean, I would think that does he have the lyrics to Billy in his head just floating <laughs> around? I mean, does he? I mean, come on. He must have had some. Uh, there must have been some level of preparation before yeah. he decided to do it. I doubt that he was like, hey, let's do Boots on Spin. Now, nah, you know what? Let me sing Billy. Like, I, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he must have prepared. But who yeah. knows? I don't know how much he, you know, I know his band rehearses, but I don't know how much he warns them about what he plans to do. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, and I'm sure he figured, okay, this song, he, these guys can hang with my three-chord song. But yeah, just to show up in Stockholm in 2009. I mean, and yeah, like, Stockholm, yeah. Sweden of all places. Right. You know what He's I mean? not in not New even... Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> He's not in the real Picos Valley. Yeah, he's like okay, and that's it. That's the one time. That's it. So, I mean, that made me. That kind of made me feel good that he pulled it out at least one time. That it made me think like he's like, oh yeah, this is a good song because it yeah. is. It is yeah, a good yeah, yeah. song. You know, it yeah. really is. It's really fun to listen to, and it, it's it's it um it works. I think it works well in the movie. Um, I will say that like I feel like the movie burns through his soundtrack material fast because by the time the movie's two hours. By the time you get to the hour mark, both of the songs have been played at right. that point, you know, and you're like, okay, well now for the remaining hour, it's kind of, kind of just, you know, reuse a lot of the same material. And we're going to hear Turkey chase and whatever. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean the, 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 the famous scene with knocking on heaven's door with slim Pickens and Katie Rado is at like the 56 minute mark. And after that, you're like, well, geez, the, that's it. You know, the, the <laughs> more famous song. So, um, you know, yeah, maybe they could have used another, you know, another song again, there's this goodbye Holly song. And I've never heard that there. I mean, I can't imagine that there's ever going to be a bootleg series release based on the sessions for this. It seems a little limited, but this stuff should be unearthed like any of the other material. Cause apparently there was quite a bit of it. Yeah. I mean, we really haven't had a like, you know, early seventies bootleg session. Um, you know, so who knows whether there's, you know, more planet wave stuff out there or some that hasn't been on earth. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the sort of pretty blood in the tracks, um, you know, era, you know, I mean, we've got all the sixties, uh, you know, classic stuff that you could ever, (laughs) you know, want, I mean, you know, so, um, that is uh, a little bit of an era, uh, that, you know, maybe there's some, still some gold, uh, in those hills. Yeah. And it may have, I mean, just doing the soundtrack may have kind of, eased him back into recording uh, in terms of, you know, working with other musicians and looking for inspiration. And then, you know, a year later he's doing planet waves. So, I mean, and then, yeah. you know, then he was off at that point. So, yep. you know, it, yeah, for, for someone that was laying kind of dormant in the early seventies and then coming back for a soundtrack on a Western, it does feel a little like really that, but 
you know, you can kind of see creatively like, okay, let me, as you were saying, like, let me try something different and see what the results are of that. And again, it's only in a, you know, there's just Billy and knock on heaven's door, but you know, wow. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. in terms of the exactly. quality, that's pretty, right. pretty, pretty high. Right. Yeah. A lot of people would, would kill to have those two songs in your catalog. Alone. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Un- unbelievable. So yeah, it's, it's a really terrific song and I'm, I'm glad that you suggested it. I mean, it's always funny when I read emails from people and say, what songs do you want to cover? And you know, once in a while, someone will point something out where I go, really? That one? <laughs> okay. That's okay. You know, again, not again, not that Billy's a bad song. It's a great song, but just no one's ever asked for it ever, ever. And so it made me just like, all right, I got to talk to this guy. I got to find out what, what, of all the songs to do, we're going to do Billy. Like, okay, that's really cool. So uh, thank you so much for suggesting it. Oh yeah. It was tons of fun. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I, I don't know. I really like this song. So I figured why not? If nobody else is crazy enough to talk about it, why not me? Absolutely. So all right, before we sign off here, uh, I have to ask you the standard question, David. So if there was one uh, set of recording sessions that you could sit in on of Bob's, what would it be? Okay. So, you know, I listen to your show. I listen to the answers to this question, and nobody, I don't think, has said this. And it seems so obvious to me. But the answer for me, if I'm being sincere, is the next album. Because that means, number one, we get another album. <laughs> so that, on its own, is like a guarantee that I would love to have, right? And I don't know. I feel like he just gets more interesting. And, uh, you know, I've read tons and tons and tons of, of, you know, about the recording of, you know, a lot of the albums from the 60s and 70s and, and, and they're on. But, um, to see how he operates at age 81 or 89 or whatever he makes his next album. Yeah, seriously. Um, I feel like that would be just as fascinating and compelling. And uh, like I said, plus it locks in the guarantee of another album, which, uh, you know, we, uh, is, uh, I think uh, would be a gift to humanity if I could make that happen. I kind of like that reverse engineering idea there. That's interesting, you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I will be there, but that means there's going to be another album. So, yeah, I like that a lot. There you go. Uh, there go. I'm into oh, it. Yeah. It would be really interesting to hear him, what it is like to, we've heard little bits and pieces. You know, there's like the Tello Bill sessions where you hear him talking to the band and stuff. But yeah, that would be fascinating. So yeah, I like that answer. Good answer. There you Very go. good. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Why don't you tell people where they can find you around on the internet? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I am the co-host of a podcast called Rock Docs, where we talk about music documentaries. You can, of course, find that wherever you find podcasts. Uh, we have uh, Bob Dylan has very often come up, as you can imagine, uh, sure. both as the subject of documentaries and also uh, a person who pops up or his music pops up, etc. So um, we're huge Bob Dylan heads uh, over at Rock Docs, and so um, yeah, so that's uh, so Dylan fans will probably find some some good stuff in there. The Mavis documentary, the Mavis Staples one, um, had had some good Dylan stuff, and we talked about that one recently. So yeah, Rock Docs, and we're at Rock Docs Pod on Twitter, so that's probably the best place to find me at Rock Docs Pod. And then also, <laughs> uh, my wife and I own a model railroad museum in San Diego, California. So if anybody's into trains, uh, you're uh, welcome to check that out. It's oldtowntrains.com or oldtowntrains on uh, social if you want to check out the, uh, the model railroad running around. And uh, yeah, I mean, I know Bob Dylan's a train guy. So uh, if you're listening, Bob, come down. We'll, we'll comp your ticket, Bob. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. You, you can't just drop that and move on. How does one end up owning a model train museum how does that that's, work that's not something that everybody all your guests don't own model railroad museum um do you want to hear the story i can tell, absolutely I, don't know I do i wouldn't have asked okay all right so um 
All right. So a few years ago, my wife and I, my wife had heard about this little tiny museum in Old Town, San Diego, which is like where kind of uh, the the city of San Diego was founded. And there's like a mission and, you know, it's like kind of an old westerny kind of um, town itself, um, just right next to downtown. And so um, we went down there with our kid who was then two. And he, of course, he loved trains. And uh, we checked it out and we're like, oh, my God, this is incredible. It's like 2,500 square feet, like storefront museum with this just like unbelievable O scale, like Lionel scale layout. Um, you know, just like, I mean, you can never run out of things to see there. It was so beautiful. And we were like, this place is incredible. I'm talking to the owner of this guy named Gary. And I was like, this is great. We're going to be here all the time. And he's like, well, unfortunately, we're closing. And I asked him why. And he said, well, you know, we've I've had this place for five years and the lease is coming up. And he was an older guy and he, you know, basically was kind of looking to retire. He couldn't keep it up anymore. So I said, uh, is it for sale? <laughs> And he said, I guess so. Um, and a month later, we took the keys to the museum. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it wasn't like a plan of ours to purchase a model railroad museum. Uh, but uh, it just kind of happened. And um, so it's been great. I would not necessarily recommend buying a museum right before a global pandemic um, <laughs> in terms of uh, timing. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it's great. Uh, like I said, oldtowntrains.com, you can see, or oldtowntrains on Instagram or Facebook, you can see videos of the trains and pictures. And of course, we sell stuff online and we love it when people buy things. <laughs> so, um, you know, just like any other business. But uh, yeah. I mean, so are you do- into like trains? Was that like. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, like a lot of people, like my dad and I had a train set when I was okay. a kid. All right. All right. Um, okay. You know, it wasn't like my lifelong passion, but I always right. liked trains and. <laughs> Um, you know, it was like, I had my trains from when I was a kid that, you know, like in the garage and I was like, yeah, one day maybe I'll, you know, have a, you know, a garage or something where I'll have room, you know, maybe when my kid's older or something, we'll, uh, build a train set. That'll be fun. And now in, instead of that, I have a giant <laughs> train museum. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a different experience, but, um, it's a lot of fun. Do a lot of people come in? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a tourist business. And this is in a really touristy part of town where people, okay. you know, a lot of people are coming to San Diego to visit. So they'll just stop in um, or, you know, people make it a destination. I mean, the model railroading hobby is, um, you know, it, it's, um, I mean, it's had its ups and downs, but it, you know, there's a lot of uh, fans of uh, it's model railroading. It's still like a thriving thing? Thriving to an extent. I mean, you know, it's it's probably not as popular as it was like in the 50s uh, or something like that. But, um, you know, it's still... Uh, Certainly around, you know, the holidays, trains are a big thing, whether it's like around the Christmas tree or gifts and things like that. So we sell tons of, you know, gifts, um, trains for everyone from little kids to uh, serious uh, hobbyists. And uh, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, go look, <laughs> go check out the videos. You'll probably like it. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. So uh, it kind of has that, uh, you know, Bob Dylan-ish uh, Americana kind of spirit to it. It sure so. does. I could see him walking into a store like that. When he's yeah. just, you know, walking around the town and he's I mean, doing a Neil, show and he's got time to Neil, go. Neil Young's a big model railroad guy. Uh, huh. Rod Stewart is. So, um, Rod Stewart. Wow. Rod, oh, my God. Look up go, go, Google Rod Stewart's model railroad layout and the guy is obsessed. He brings it with him on tour. He gets a separate hotel room next to him for his model train setup. And yeah. He's, you know, he, he so yeah, he, he's really into it. And uh, yeah, so I don't know that Bob is necessarily a model railroader per se, but uh, he certainly, you know, if he wants to get interested in the hobby, I'd be happy to help him out. That is amazing. That is, that is, yeah, 
I, I, I really, I feel like we could do a whole other show on this subject because I, I just find it. I'll, I'll tell you this again. We have to sign off, and I don't want to get too far. But would there, uh, when on our we drive, uh, we we often visit Ocean City, New Jersey, because it's it's a, yeah. we have a family down there, and I love it. And we go back roads. We don't take the main highway, and we pass through a lot of really small towns, little. I don't want to say podunk, that's kind of insulting, but just like small towns with not a whole lot going on. And we pass this model train, like toy dealer. Yeah. There, right. Okay. And, and I always am like, who, like, who stops in there? It's <laughs> like, it's not like you're driving by and you go, oh, there's a model train store. You know what I mean? Like you have to know it's there. And yet that store has been there for like 20 years. So I'm yeah. like, somebody's shopping there. They wouldn't still be there if they weren't. But every time I go by, and I'm always wondering, God, who are these people that are buying these? But obviously, I'm learning so much about model trains. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, support your local model train dealer. And uh, yeah, it's it's a fun hobby and it's a, it's a cool thing. So I did not expect to be talking about this at such great length. But uh, always either, a subject I'm happy to discuss. It's, you know, it's it's the, the wonders of podcasting. You just find new subjects to discuss. Well, that, that really is fascinating. So, all right, everybody. Uh, well, thanks so much for listening. Uh, of course, you can find back episodes of this show on our website, fridaywaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And finally, if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, let's go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. James Coburn. Bill! Chris Christofferson. Come on in, Pat! Jason Robards, Slim Pickens, Katie Harado, Jack Elam, That'd be me, sure. Rita Coolidge, Chill Wills, and introducing in his first dramatic motion picture performance, <clears throat> Plums. recording star Bob Dylan. They say that Pat Garrett got your number.